Jesus came to save a diverse people. And through his blood and the indwelling of the Spirit, we are now invited to live as a harmonious, unified family. This series will help you step into the life, teaching, and empowering presence of Jesus so you can follow him in your home, with your finances, and in your vocation. Now hear the word of the Lord. Most of the crowds of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Praise God in the highest heaven! The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar when he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. Peace be with you. So here we are, a group of mostly Christians, people who would say that Jesus is our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah. He deserves our ultimate allegiance because he has brought us from death into life by his sacrifice for us on the cross, freeing us from sin and Satan. And he's a modest Messiah the suffering servant whose life and death showed us, as Pastor Stephen taught last week, that greatness comes through lowliness. So we come together to praise this modest Messiah, because, but sometimes it's tough because we can't figure out what God is doing in this world, what he's allowing, and why he's taking so long to set up his kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. Many of you are sweating this election that's about to occur. And because this is a church of various political persuasions, the one thing that is certain is that some of you are about to be very disappointed. You're going to be deeply concerned for the future of this nation and deeply suspicious of Christians, of brothers and sisters in Christ who do not share your concern, who even seem joyful about whichever one gets in the Oval Office. What is God doing? And what are we supposed to do? We pledge allegiance to our modest Messiah. But what does this allegiance ask of us? What does it demand of us? What does it promise us? And when will the promise finally be fulfilled? Today's story takes place nearly 2,000 years ago at the start of Passover week, a huge annual celebration for the time, 1,400 years before today's story, when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Jews from all over the Roman Empire traveled into Jerusalem to go to the Jerusalem temple for this observance. So as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, so are thousands of others. And this includes many of the people that he's been ministering to for three years in his home region of Galilee, and other predominantly poor 
marginalized places outside of the elite capital city. You see a map on the screen behind me. Uh, This is a map of first century Palestine, what we think of as Israel. And you'll notice that Jerusalem, the capital city, is way down in the south. And then Jesus, his home region of Galilee, which includes his hometown of Nazareth, is way up in the north. That's where Jesus spent most of his time and where he ministered for the most part, among these people who lacked cultural sophistication and spoke even with an accent that the big city folks disdained. If you were from Galilee, you were not allowed to lead public prayers or read scripture in public in Judea because they considered your accent so low class. These were Jesus' people. He had healed them. He had taught them that God loved them and that God had sent him to deliver them from oppression. Rome ruled them. Imagine today, if you, when you drive home from church, imagine if you had to pass through a couple military checkpoints, Iranian military checkpoints, where the soldiers ogled your spouse or your daughter, and the sight of executed, decaying American bodies in the streets reminded you that you'd better not do anything about it. This was their reality. But Jesus gave them hope. Over the next 20 minutes or so, you'll hear me say from time to time, this uh, verse uh, harkens back to uh, something that was said in Isaiah or Malachi or the Psalms and Jeremiah, so on and so on. And what that means is things happen in today's story that were foretold by prophets hundreds of years before writing in earlier books of the Bible in the Old Testament. Prophecies of a deliverer who would restore Israel's kingdom and who would rule the world with justice. So Jesus and his disciples are coming to the big city, but they stop in a small town nearby where Jesus gives two of them a mission to get a donkey. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Other translations may say meek or gentle instead of humble. When this term was applied to leaders, it meant they were leaders of compassion and mercy rather than leaders who exploited people and flaunted their power. So we see even from the way Jesus enters Jerusalem, that we pledge allegiance to a modest Messiah. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, wrote of this verse, he rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. So Jesus rides the donkey. And then, verse 8, Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Waving and laying down palm branches was a sign that a king or a hero was on the way. Spreading out their garments was even more of an honor because the king knows it has cost his subjects something. That's their clothes, man. And remember, these are mostly poor people. 
servant classes, sick and disabled, blue-collar workers, widows, orphans. Many of them, if they laid even one more item on the road, would have been standing there naked. He was their champion, and they loved him. And we'll see why as this story rolls along, but we have to avoid a way of interpreting this story that dehumanizes these people, that sees them as less than the body and soul human beings that God created them to be. And this dehumanization can take either of two forms. In the words of scholar Esau Macaulay, first, it can treat the poor as mere bodies that need food and not the transforming love of God. Second, it can view them as souls whose experience of the here and now should not trouble us. There's a danger in saying that Jesus only came to alleviate physical needs. And maybe he went a little crazy with the religion stuff, but we should just concentrate on feeding the hungry and tending to their physical needs, not preaching repentance and salvation in his name. But the second danger says, let's spiritualize this whole story. Jesus came to do spiritual things. He cares about spiritual poverty, spiritual oppression. Let's not get hung up on physical liberation. Let's just treat this as a a kind of an elaborate allegory for the life of the soul. And we'll see how false this is. His kingdom is not of this world, but it has come and is coming to this world to transform it. The one who created us, body and soul, cares about us, body and soul. Verse 9. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. The word uproar could more literally be translated quaked. It's from the Greek word where we get the English word seismic. Metaphorically, Jesus caused a seismic shock upon entering Jerusalem. And part of that is because most of Jerusalem does not know who he is. These crowds of Passover pilgrims from the unimportant places have to tell them. Verse 11, and the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Notice they had to say the city and the region because it was such a nothing happening place. This would be like if you were out in L.A. or New York. You would never say, you know, Jesus from New Albany. Because they would have no idea what you're talking about. You'd have to say Jesus from this little town called New Albany over in Indiana, which would immediately be understood as a nothing town in a flyover state. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. This phrase, drive out, is literally the Greek word for exercise. Jesus is performing an exorcism. But what was so wrong here? Out of towners, coming into Jerusalem, needed to buy sacrificial animals in Jerusalem. And their foreign currencies needed to be exchanged. And we we know from history that the money changers themselves were not making extreme profits. 
The Sadducees, this group who were in charge of the temple, were raking in the dough. So this would be like if you went to Walmart to protest corporate practices. Your target isn't really the cashier who makes 15 bucks an hour or the customer who's trying to buy cheese whiz and tissue paper. But that's who's in front of you. And you're hoping to draw out the big dogs. Up to this point, Jesus has mostly battled the Pharisees, a fundamentalist group who were respected by many in Israel, but who nevertheless were not really running the show. Now he's confronting the wealthy Sadducees who controlled the temple and who were in league with their Roman overlords. Now he is speaking truth to power. It's not the first time. Earlier, when the Pharisees warned that King Herod wanted to kill Jesus, he said in Luke 13, verse 32, Go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people. Jesus, a modest-looking peasant from the Galilean hills, has just insulted royalty. The fox isn't like the majestic lion, the powerful eagle. It's a small, tricky animal with limited power, which was a pretty good description of Herod, a puppet king who was installed by the real authority, Caesar of Rome. But if Jesus is going to overthrow the oppressor, why isn't he marching on Rome? Why is he wasting his time and throwing his weight around in church? Well, Caesar and all tyrants will fall in time. Jesus is starting with those who claim to speak for God, who use the Bible as a tool of oppression. The temple priests ruled over the Jewish high court and ensured that Rome was placated. And the temple held the central bank and the treasury. So this was a place of deceptively great influence. The priests got their base income from a portion of temple sacrifices as the law of Moses prescribed. But increasingly, in the centuries leading up to Christ, they added to it with this series of additional offerings that were basically big taxes that enriched them at the expense of the people. So now, Jesus is dropping truth on the Jerusalem temple. Verse 13, he said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The first part is a partial quote. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7. So let's read that in full. This is God's will for the temple. This is God want, what God wants the temple to be. My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice, for all nations, for everybody. God had set Israel apart so that eventually the whole world would be blessed through them. Israel had failed in this mission, so now God himself has taken on flesh to become the faithful Israelite on their behalf. He is fulfilling their terms of the covenant for them. And this is still what he does for us. This is the only way we can be brought into the family of God, right? He lives a life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. He fulfilled the covenant for us. We pledge allegiance to a modest Messiah. 
Unlike the original temple built by Solomon, the son of David, about 900 years before this story, this current temple built by the family of Herod excluded women from the main part. Jewish women could only go up to what was called the court of women. It excluded Gentiles, both men and women, even further. And by Gentiles, I mean all other ethnicities. They could only go to the court of Gentiles, which was outside the court of women. The cellars were set up in the court of Gentiles. So all those noisy animals, the money exchange tables, the festival atmosphere was crowding out the only place that other ethnic groups could worship. Imagine if we here at Sojourn said, hey, minorities, it's fine for you to come here, but you have to stay out in the lobby. That's where you worship. You stay out there. And yeah, we know it's going to be a little distracting at times, maybe a little hard to hear at times. We've got a lot of hustle and bustle out there. We've got the entrance and the exits and the restrooms and the donation boxes. And we've got the the coffee bar and the welcome table. And there's books for sale. We've got the iPad that we use as a cash register for all the books and other swag for sale. There's going to be people that are standing around, milling around, talking, people coming and going. It's going to be very distracting, but that's where you have to stay and worship. And if we said that, and then one fine Sunday morning, Jesus shows up to Sojourn Gathered. How far is he throwing that iPad? I'm I'm guessing it makes a pretty good Frisbee. Books flying left and right, our, our coffee spilling all over the floor. That's what's going on here. Jesus is flipping tables. He's tossing chairs. He won't have it. But what he does next is the most dramatic part of the demonstration. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Remember those two words, blind and lame. A thousand years before, King David of Israel wanted Jerusalem for his capital, but at the time it was the capital city of another clan, the Jebusite tribe. It's a city on a high rocky cliff, which means it's almost impossible to attack, especially by ancient armies. But it had one weakness. Cities need water. And David had discovered the spring of water at the bottom and the water shaft that took it up to the top into the city. 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, the Jebusite king mocks Samuel. He says, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. Notice again these two words, blind and lame. Verse 8, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. That is the origin of the saying, the blind and the lame may not enter the house. Although it wasn't against the law for those with disabilities to enter the temple, they were not particularly welcome there or anywhere. And it all goes back to this ancient story 
which becomes a saying, a proverb, which affects how people think of, talk of, and treat those with disabilities. For 1,000 years. But now King Jesus, the new and better David, and the new and better temple, God himself, who has taken on a house of flesh, has arrived. And he not only says to those with disabilities, you are welcome here. He says, you are healed here. You are whole here. You are family here. You are wanted, loved, and needed here. We pledge allegiance to a modest Messiah. Verse 15, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. The Sadducees frequently had to deal with revolutionaries from the poor communities who claimed to be messiahs. They threatened the profitable arrangement that the Sadducees had with Rome. Verse 16, they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, You have taught children and infants to give you praise. He's quoting Psalm 8, which is about children praising God. So now he's not only affirming that he is God's anointed one, the son of David. Now he's saying, I'm God. And your kids know it. He's the God who promised to do through the Old Testament prophets hundreds of years ago, what Jesus has just done in the temple. The prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For those who still reject this warning in our time and place, he will come again. And next time, he will ride a war animal, and there will be no more grace. But for now, before that day comes, we get to pledge allegiance to our modest Messiah. We get to lay our cloaks at the feet of Jesus by doing as he commands as the Spirit empowers. And we do, do so with the full understanding that the crowds on this ancient day did not have. We do so knowing that a few days after these events, he would win by losing, triumph by submitting, cancel our sin debt, and defeat the spiritual powers and authorities of this world through the awful circumstances that they thought they had arranged. Then he would ascend into heaven after telling his church, my mission is now your mission. And I'm sending the Holy Spirit to live inside of you so that you can work in the power of the Spirit, not to achieve a salvation that I've already granted, but to be the emissaries of your Messiah here on this earth, showing them and telling them, what I am like, and reminding them that I will come again. 
We cannot bring the kingdom in its fullness, but we get to show and tell the world what the king and his kingdom is like. In every sphere that we enter, the presence of the spirit-filled Christian echoes the mission statement of Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Why is there such a connection here with the poor, the disabled, the outsiders? What does any of this have to do with theology? Theologian Maria Clara Benjamin says, There is no experience of God if there is not justice to human beings, mostly to those who are oppressed or not allowed to live fully and deeply. Injustice and idolatry, then, go together. If you love belting out worship songs, praying, reading and debating fine points of doctrine, but you keep coming up with philosophical reasons for keeping those less fortunate at arm's length, that's a good idol check. Jesus does not have your ultimate allegiance. As citizens of heaven, we pledge allegiance to our modest Messiah. He doesn't need our help, but he fills our lives with meaning and purpose by letting us help. Why isn't this over? Why didn't he immediately establish his kingdom of righteousness 2,000 years ago? Because he didn't want the party to start without you. And that will be true of every generation of Christ followers until it isn't, until he comes again. How many more people does he still want to lead through the dark waters from bondage to freedom? The modest Messiah wanted me to exist. He wanted to bring me into his family, to experience union with him, participating by the Spirit in his life and work. And he wanted that for you too. We are going on an adventure in our time and place. So here's the Monday challenge. I always give you a Monday challenge, something really simple to do. But let me be clear about what this is not. I'm not saying do this because this is the one application, the one thing that this whole sermon, this whole text was about. I'm not saying do this and you'll be a good person. I'm not saying do this and all your problems will be solved. The Monday challenge is simply a simple liturgical response, an embodied first step response to the truth of Scripture, something that anyone could do, that you could very easily begin to do or make a plan to doing tomorrow or even this afternoon. Just a first step to begin to embody or live out the truth of Scripture rather than just hear it. So, here it is. Last year, we hosted our first affordable Christmas event. Over 20 local families in need were able to shop here in our lobby and purchase gifts for their kids at 90% off the retail price. Now, why don't we just give them to them? Because we found that uh, it affords them more dignity. It's actually better for them when they, they did this for their kids. They bought these gifts for their kids. And so 
We charge just a, a very limited uh, amount so that they can do this. And they, can, they can buy these gifts for their children. COVID makes it necessary for us to do things differently this year, but we've still committed to helping our neighbors. We want to help more of our neighbors this year during a time when the need has never been greater. So we'll have our guests drive through. We're going to do a curbside pickup of, of gifts on the morning of Saturday, December 19th from 9 a.m. to noon. How can you help? There are two ways. First, sign up for one of the volunteer positions. We need gift wrappers. We need Probably going to need a lot of gift wrappers and people who will walk gifts to the car and pray with families that come. Volunteering will be done with safety protocols in place, masks, and social distancing. You can sign up in the Sunday Bulletin on your app. So just open up the app, tap media, tap your Sunday Bulletin. You'll see today's Bulletin, and that will let you know how you can sign up. You can do it right within the app or the link that you see on the screen right now. Number two. And this, even more of you can do. Purchase gifts for these children. We'll post the gift wish list by November 1st as we learn more about what these children want. We're talking with some families in need in this community uh, and having the kids fill out wish lists. We don't just want to give them stuff that they may not want. So as soon as we have these wish lists, then we'll publish these. We'll put these on the app and in our weekly email, and we'll get the word out to you by November 1st and you can purchase gifts. So tomorrow or this afternoon, make a plan for this. Put this in your November budget. Hundreds of us can do this, and we can make a difference in some child's life this Christmas. Why are we doing this? It's just one small way, one simple way to show our corner of the world what the kingdom of God is like. And in the kingdom of God, no one gets left out. Every week, we get to pledge allegiance to our modest Messiah, remembering how low he stooped to conquer. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until I come again. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook, or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.